This is an MPT Magazine podcast. For more information, find us online at www.mptmagazine.com. Good evening and welcome to the Poetry Library. It's a real pleasure to be welcoming you all to this second event in a series, um, the World Poet Series. And the Poetry Library have been working with the uh, British Council and Modern Poetry and Translation. So it, it's a kind of triple hookup to create this new poetry series. Um, it may well be the most relaxed poetry series in the world in that we ha- have one a year. Um, <laughs> but the quality is pretty awesome. Last year we had uh, Kim Hysoon from South Korea. This year we've got Teddy Lopez Mills from Mexico. So it, it may it may be quite languorous in its pace, but the, but, but the poets that we're getting are absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm sure you're, you're all aware this event forms part of a series of events which are, which are happening all across London this week, organised by the British Council. Um, and I, I just can't believe it was by chance that they've organised this Mexico event in the kind of warmest April we've we've had. It's such a fantastic sight to see Mexico Mexican poets kind of turning up at the library, uh, struggling with the heat, you know, kind of <laughs> sweating with the with, with the April London weather. Okay, I'm going to hand over to Sasha Dugdale. Um, uh, she's a poet, as I'm sure most of you know. She's published three books with Carcanet, most recently Red House. She's a translator of, of poetry and plays and editor of Modern Poetry and Translation. Um, and MPT celebrates its 50th uh, anniversary this year, so it's a really big, big year for them. So please join me in putting your hands together for both Sasha Dugdale and Teddy Lopez-Mills. Before we start, there's a couple of um, free seats. There's two, two here if anyone wants to grab them. I think there's another one over there if you want to sit down. We're, we're aiming to finish just before nine o'clock, so it's quite a long, a long session if you're standing. <laughs> is that it? Is that is that? There's a seat. There's one just there next to this one. Is that one? That one's. Yeah. There's another free seat if anyone wants it. <coughs> Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> Seems a shame to leave seats empty when there are people standing. It's like being on a train, a commuter train, isn't it? It's the seat with the, with the bag on it. Yeah, and if she wants to leave, it's going to be very obvious. <laughs> We're just going to talk to you now, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really pleased to um, welcome Teddy Lopez-Mills tonight to the Poetry Library and to London. Um, It's a a huge honour, actually, because um, I'm I'm a massive admirer of Teddy Lopez-Mills' work. Her book, um, Death on Rural Augusta, came out last year uh, with Eyewear Press, and I know Todd Swift is here in in the audience, and um, there was a reading, and it was really, really, really well-received, really critically acclaimed, especially by... Ed, who wrote to me with huge excitement about the reading and how much he'd, he'd loved the book. So I went out and bought the book and was no less impressed than Ed. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. I've got it here. And, um, and it's, uh, it's not the first book that Teddy Lopez-Mills has published in, in, in English. She has a, an American edition called While Light is Built, uh, translated by Wendy Burke. This book is translated admirably by um, David Shook. Um, Teddy has, um, is not just a poet, she's also an essayist. Her, she's, she's written a book of prize-winning essays um, and she's also a translator herself and mo- most not- notably of Anne Carson and Marianne Moore. Um, she was also the editor of a uh, literary paper, La Gazzetta, between 1994 and 1999 um, and knowing what that work is like, I'm surprised that she, she managed, she's managed to write nine volumes of poetry and um, those volumes have won most of the major awards in Mexico for poetry. Um, I've just got a little quote here from her, uh, from an interview really, by, um, with, with Wendy Burke, who calls her work, uh, she writes of her work, to read her poetry is to enter the river of philosophy in one of its clearer channels. And um, that's really a perfect description of, of what Teddy's trying to do. It's, um, it's a sort of immense clarity, although it's extremely complex, complex um, poetry. 
Before we start the reading, I think um, Teddy and I, when we met a little bit earlier, thought it might be nice to give you a little bit of context to, um, to the work that Teddy's going to read from first, Death on Rural Augusta, as it is, it is a really, really complex book. And reading a few excerpts from it, I'm sure you will, like me, be spellbound by the style, but actually um, to, to, have to know something of the context will, will enrich the experience, I think, immeasurably. So um, when we talked earlier, uh, we had a really fantastic discussion um, and I, I hope we can sort of slightly recreate that for you now because it was really, really enlightening to me. To, to me. Um, but the book, is, it does have a narrative. I mean, it has, it has three central characters, I'd say. It has the, the main protagonist, Gordon. It has um, his, his, his wife, Donna, and a third character, Ralph, um, a lover of Donna. But that really simpli simplifies it Beyond, beyond words. Do you want to say a, a little bit about that, Teddy? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for being here. It's really quite a privilege for me. Uh, I don't think I've <clears throat> ever read in front of so many people, so uh, thank you. And I also thank uh, the British Council, and I thank Sasha Dogdale for the invitation and MPT for publishing a poem in the magazine, in the most recent magazine. And we, were, we, we had a half an hour conversation uh, and I tried to explain uh, to Sasha how this poem arose. It's a narrative poem. It's also a poem noir. It's a thriller in a way. Uh, it's a poem. It's, yes, there are characters. It's Gordon Smith, his wife Donna, Ralph, and then two characters that are very important as well, the gardener, uh, Jaime, and Anonymous, who's probably, as I told uh, uh, Sasha, the most prolific, prolific writers, writer of all times. Anonymous has written a lot of things. No? So Anonymous becomes kind of like the presence that breaks Gordon apart. This, it, it's, it all started as, it all started with, a, with I was in Portugal uh, in 2008, I think, 2009, and I was uh, first day of tourism, uh, and we were on the Rua Augusta, and there was a group of tourists, of uh, uh, old tourists, German tourists, and they were walking through Rua Augusta, which is a very beautiful street, and all of a sudden, uh, one of the tourists, a man, fell and died. His wife was crying, a, a friend was hugging his wife, consoling his wife, and I stayed there staring. My husband and a friend we were traveling with said, well, you have to stop, we have to go away, you can't stay here. So I returned to Mexico with this in my mind, kept on going and thinking what his last night would have been like in Lisbon. So I started writing a story, which is the last chapter of the book, and it didn't work out because I didn't know what to do with a German tourist. So all of a sudden, I decided, I started the poem, and the poem begins with a corpse lying beside a pool in Fullerton, California, very far away from Lisbon, Portugal. And the, the reason why it takes place in Fullerton, California is because I stayed, in, I stayed there in my grandmother's house. My mother was American uh, for about three months. I don't know how much. It, it seems like it was an eternity. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Fullerton, California. Probably not. Nobody goes to Fullerton, California. <laughs> Nobody would pay a ticket to go there, but I went because I thought I might kind of like find my fortune in the United States and then travel to Europe. And I stayed at my grandmother's house, and it was my grandmother, my uncle, who was a very strange uh, character, and me in this house. In this, it was this kind of uh, in suburbia, USA, this, these kind of groups of houses all built in the same way, and in the center there's a swimming pool. I was the only one that used the swimming pool, and there was a gardener, and the gardener, of course, was Mexican. So I had my, basically my human contact was with the Mexican gardener, and we had conversations, he became my friend, and for some strange reason, this poem, this poem kind of took up this story of my, 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 my trip to Fullerton, California, and that's how the poem begins. It begins with a corpse in Fullerton, California, and it ends with a corpse in Lisbon, but it really, the corpse never travels. It always stays there by the pool in Fullerton, California. So that's pretty much. Yeah, and there were, there were a couple of other things we talked about which were particularly interesting. 
you, you said at one point that the, the central character, Gordon, was in part you, or it was in part a sort of autobiographical impetus, I suppose. Yes, in the sense that there is a stuttering self that uh, uh, always kind of puts me on the sidelines. And in that sense, like Flaubert said of Madame Bovary, he said, Madame Bovary is me. Gordon, in a sense, is me. Uh, of course, I'm not an accountant. I'm not a man. <laughs> I'm not that old. <laughs> and so what happens to Gordon is that Gordon uh, has kind of like a breakdown, and, uh, and that's when Anonymous takes over. And Anonymous is... is well, it's very it's hard to explain. So, so many things take place, and it's it's even hard for me now to understand how I came up with all this story. It, it was in 2008. What, how did I come up with this story where Gordon, in Fullerton, California, all of a sudden receives five books from his friend Ralph, who's really having a love affair with, with his wife Donna, and all these books are self-help books for Gordon, who had to leave his office as an accountant because he broke down. And that's where Anonymous comes in. So, uh, uh, I don't know, that's pretty much what we... It's a narrative poem, and I was telling uh, Sasha that poetry, or at least in my case, I think poetry is always on the defensive. She talked about like, kind of like an electrical fence, no? Poetry is also, also always encased and surrounded by barbed wire. <coughs> always in danger of being uh, hurt, no? So if it's a symbol, symbolist poem, the reader complains. What is this? I don't understand. It's a symbolist poem. What does it mean except the symbol? If it's a lyrical poem, it's sentimental, almost bordering the sentimental. If it's a descriptive poem, uh, why do I want to know more about nature? I'm, I'm seeing what, what the poet is seeing. What is this? And if it's a narrative poem, it makes things even worse because it's real treason to poetry, no? Poet, although poetry began as narrative poetry. And I was also telling her last night, being on the defensive, I was thinking, how am I going to justify this to the English readers? <laughs> and I, was, I, I bought a book by Alice Oswald called Dart, and I started reading it uh, yesterday. And I thought, well, here's a narrative poem. Very different, of course, from this, because it's a river. The river is, is talking. And, of course, it, it's not Fullerton, California. Uh, Fullerton, California sounds so ordinary, but... <laughs> well, there's something between there's something in the two works which is very similar, some sort of fluidity and also something about the many voices that come up in this book. I'm very torn because I can see that time is passing and I've got loads more questions I'd like to ask, but we will come back and talk a little bit more afterwards and there'll be time at the end also for you to ask questions. Perhaps we'd, you'd better start reading I'll and start then reading. we can I'll carry on. Here. We've decided that I'll read some, <clears throat> some of the poems in, in Spanish. Sasha will read in English. It's in chapters. Uh, there is, uh, it is a thriller in a way. There is, uh, there is this kind of crime. No one knows who commits the crime. There's sexual violence. Uh, there's treason. There's money. Money that, that Gordon hid somewhere. So I'll start with chapter zero. Sobre el cadáver del señor llamado Gordon, junto a una alberca, bajo un árbol, se halló un trozo de papel donde alguien, quizá hasta el propio Gordon, había garabateado las palabras. Anónimo dijo, esto ni se lee ni se entiende. Atop the body of the man named Gordon, beside a pool, beneath a tree, there was a scrap of paper where someone, maybe even Gordon himself, had scrawled the words, Anonymous said, this is neither re read nor understood. Chapter 1. En la primera mañana de su vida nueva, el señor Gordon, santo señor Gordon, hacía dibujos para los nietos de sus vecinos y atildaba el jardín para su esposa Donna. Mira lo que planté hoy, le decía. Heliotropos y rosas y malbones para ti, lodo para mí, palabras y gusanos para ti, guijarro que tengo aquí, vidrio, una gota de sangre dona, mi sangre para ti. 
Así jugaba el señor Gordon en su jardín en las, afuera, en las afueras de Fullerton, California. Jugaba y luego lloraba tirado en la tierra con su gota de sangre, la boca negra, la inmensa boca vengando esa mancha súbita, innecesaria mancha de silencio, después del vidrio en la cara, la cara suave de Donna. Perdón te pido y mil veces perdón, hasta que ella lo levantaba de la tierra y lo metía en la casa y lo lavaba y lo acariciaba. Eres mi animal, mi animalito, y le tocaba los labios con la punta de un trapo y le decía en susurros, Gordon, te odio, y él se reía. On the first morning of his new life, Mr. Gordon, blessed Mr. Gordon, made drawings for his neighbor's grandchildren and tilled the garden for his wife, Donna. Look what I planted today, he told her. Heliotropes and roses and geraniums for you. Mud for me, words and worms for you. A pebble. Or what do I have here? Glass. A drop of blood. Donna, my blood for you. So Mr. Gordon played in his yard in the suburbs of Fullerton, California. He played and then he cried, sprawled on the earth with his drop of blood, his black mouth, his immense mouth, avenging that sudden stain, the unnecessary stain of silence after the glass in his face, Donna's soft face, I'm sorry, a thousand times over, until she lifted him from the dirt and took him inside and cleaned him and cuddled him, you're my beast, my little beast. And she touched his lips with the tip of a rag, and she whispered, Gordon, I hate you, and he laughed. This next one I'm going to read directly in English, although you read much better than I do, but I'll tr try. Two, in the quiet of the night, Mr. Gordon sat at the dining room table and wrote in his diary, Today I cut my skin with Donna again. I put my hand in the mud and tightened my pliers on the hardest root and twisted it and broke it and the root shouted, that's a lie, Gordon, while I pulled it. You're no one, old madman, useless old man, and I beat it until I killed it. I am still someone. When I go out in the mornings to walk through the yard, the neighbors and the neighbors' grandchildren greet me. Hi, Gordon, and I greet them. Hi, neighbors and neighbors' grandchildren. And I walk towards the pool that is everyone's pool, where Mr. Gar Mr. Jaime, the gardener, is, skimming hair from the water, and we talk like two friends. Then he takes me back to my house, where Donna is. Gordon traced the root on the page. He made an oval, and beneath it put pool, and over it an enormous sun, on one side a stick, that was him next to another thicker one, that was Mr. Jaime. Along this line we walked, taking dirty steps over the grass, quiet because I don't dare tell Mr. Jaime that I collect memories of pools, numbered with names, a photo or a drawing, the desert pool, the prairie pool, the mountain pool, rectangular amidst, amidst the dried leaves or round when the dog days of summer approach tracy lines in the air that rebounds to touch me, and I think to raise a wall that I have seen many pools over many years, also holes without pools in my head, an indistinct well burrowing noisily into the sinking shape of my face. But today I must confess something else. I got mad with Dawn and cried in the garden, and she wiped off my lips with her rag. It smelled like wet grease, like white tongue, Donna squeezes me. Where is the money, Gordon? She says in a low voice. Where did you hide it? What money, Donna? She laughs, and it hurts me. Gordon finished his annotation with a list of activities for the next day. Tomorrow I am going to, one, prepare Donna's breakfast, bread and warm milk with a teaspoon of honey. Two, study my book of origami and learn to make a coyote and give it to Donna. Three, read and underline the guides to Spain and Portugal. Four, 
Review my blue notebook of pools and my no white notebook of drawings. Where did I put the shadow of the mirror that I left stuck here? I asked Donna mockingly, and she looked at me apprehensively. I never saw anything, she told me. I gave her a wink and made a face. Let's just forget it, Donna. I just have to say, my uncle, uh, whose name was Maury, he kept a diary for many years, and my mother and my aunt were very curious about this diary, and they wanted to know what, he, because he was a very quiet man, what, was, what he was writing in this diary. So one day, finally, they were, they, they were able to get a hold of the diary, and he put the same thing every single day in the diary. Woke up, washed my teeth, washed my face, had breakfast, took out the trash, went out for a walk. Every single day, the same thing. So in a sense, this is the diary that Gordon starts to write before Anonymous appears and becomes the writer that, that becomes like the, the writer that Anonymous can't, that Gordon can't be. I think the next one is, sorry, because I have so many little papers. Ah, okay, this is in Spanish now, no? Oops. Gordon tenía cuatro libros en su mesa. Cómo emplearse sin empleo, manual de jardinería para principiantes, el ABC del origami, guía del viajero España y Portugal. Se los había regalado Ralph junto con un cuaderno azul de las albercas, uno blanco de los dibujos y uno verde su diario. En cada libro Gordon había puesto su marca, una G negra con bordes amarillos. Luego había examinado los libros en busca de alguna trampa, algún mensaje secreto hundido entre las páginas. Antes de comenzar a leerlos, los había puesto en el pasto afuera, abierto cada uno en la mitad exacta, y se había dicho, hoy duermen afuera, y si mañana están aquí en el mismo lugar, podrán, podrán entrar de nuevo a mi casa. Y los cuatro entraron. Con los cuadernos fue menos estricto, los dejó descansando uno o dos días en la mesa, no los miró ni una sola vez hasta que finalmente, compadecido, se acercó al montón y escribió su nombre completo en las tres portadas, Gordon Smith. En el cuaderno azul anotó mis albercas, en el blanco mis dibujos, en el verde el preferido mi diario y debajo lunes. Hoy saqué la basura, hoy desayuné dos panes con mermelada, Hoy me lavé los dientes. Hoy salí al jardín y saludé a los vecinos. Hoy no estaban los nietos de los vecinos. Hoy no estaba don Jaime. Hoy comí mucho. Más tarde cené. Cuando colocó el punto con su pluma negra, sintió una presencia por encima del hombro. Volteó y no había nadie, pero era alguien. Lo sabía Gordon y cerró los ojos hasta que vio esa cara y le preguntó, ¿Quién eres? La cara con los dientes chuecos, la cara vieja, le respondió, llámame anónimo. Y al día siguiente el diario estuvo mucho mejor. Gordon had four books on his table. How to work without going to work. Beginner's gardening manual. The ABCs of origami. Travel guide, Spain and Portugal. Ralph had given them to him together with a blue notebook for his pools, a white one for his <coughs> drawings, and a green one, his diary. Gordon had put his mark in each book, a black G with yellow borders. Then he has examined the books in search of some trickery, some secret message hidden between their pages. Before beginning to read them, he had placed them in the grass outside, each one open to its exact middle and had told them, tonight you sleep outside and if tomorrow you are here in the same place, you can enter my home again. And all four entered. With the notebooks, he was less strict. He left them resting for one or two days on the table. 
He didn't look at them even a single time until finally, regretfully, he neared the stack and wrote his complete name on the three covers, Gordon Smith. He labelled the blue notebook My Pools, the white one My Drawings, the green one his favourite, My Diary, and inside that, Monday. Today I took out the trash. Today for breakfast I ate two pieces of toast with jam. Today I brushed my teeth. Today I went out to the yard and greeted the neighbours. Today the neighbours' grandchildren weren't there. Today Mr Jaime wasn't there. Today I ate a lot. Later I ate dinner. When he added the full stop with his black pen... He felt a presence over his shoulder. He turned and there was no one there, but it was someone. Gordon knew it and he closed his eyes until he saw that face and asked it, Who are you? The face with the crooked teeth, the old face, responded, Call me Anonymous. And the next day, his diary was much better. Chapter 9 <clears throat> Donna sets the table and I, and I tell her, for him, ha, huh, right, lace tablecloth, cloth, silverware, glasses of cut crystal. For him, you cook, you put on makeup, earrings, bracelets, necklaces, whatever resplendent thing that I, Gordon, never get to see. Ralph arrives, you gave him your hand. He kisses it with an odious smooch, while I, Gordon, slip away, paint my ray of slowness and silence when he asks me, What's up, Gordon? Do you remember me yet? And the two laugh as if they know me. I take out my teeth. I am an animal, a little beast. I sing softly. Don Donna po pokes my ribs. Shut up, Gordon. I show Ralph my hands. Don't pay attention to him. And we enter the living room. No one breaks me, I say. I am the strongest. Donna serves the drinks, winks at Ralph. He responds to her with closed knees. The record sounds like a needle wet, very wet over the flat night. Sounds behind the curtain. Anonymous, is that you? There is no one when I pull the cords. Close them, Donna yells. Ralph and she dance. My spirit of crystal. My spirit of paper. I didn't see it depart. I didn't see it come. I motion the white wall to Ralph. He strokes Donna's back. He doesn't let go of her waist. What are you muttering down there, Gordon? I recline on the carpet. That cracks Ralph up. Just look at you, Gordon. I insist on imitating a caterpillar. I crawl and arch my back. That's enough, Gordon, Donna howls. She goes to the kitchen. Ralph lifts me with a tug of the arm. He twists me. Dinner is already on the table. And if we tie him up, jokes Ralph, I'll behave myself, I told them and told myself. My closed mouth a tombstone, I promised them. Who sings in my head? Graveless by the river, my body's bones. Anonymous or who? Nothing to do with me, I announce. Not the bones, nor these words. Are you not going to talk, Gordon? Asks Ralph, the conversationalist, with a spoon in his hand. Donna told me you now use the notebooks. Did you read the books, the guide to, to Spain and Portugal? Remember, if you get better, we'll go. Talk, Gordon. Answer, don't be rude, orders Donna. And the origami book? The coyote is a secret that the only anonymous knows. How I construct the snout step by step. I pretend it is a house, a door, a screen of knotted wires, those fangs on Donna's skin. Those fangs of my coyote when I finish it, they'll make her beg me again. Gordon, let me go now. But I won't take out my fangs until she kisses me on the mouth like before, wanting always more. Ignore him, Donna says. They talk tiny mouths, they talk tiny moths in the lamp of the trips they haven't taken that there we're going to take. Look at him. If I, Gordon, could talk, if I, Gordon, could, what would I tell them, anonymous, of the world of life on the outskirts, of you with the grass grown up to my neck?
next case, 14. Chapter 14. A. ¿La vida en el lodo es superior a la vida en el aire, en el fuego, en el agua? Querido diario, nadie me dice la verdad. Nadie me explica cómo separar una tierra de la otra tierra que voy tocando con la mano. Mano amarrada, mano lastimada. Querido diario, nadie me dice qué estoy haciendo aquí boca arriba, cubierto de hojas, de grava. Nadie me pone en el buen camino. Ayer me dictó anónimo una de sus sabias sentencias. La primera condición para la jardinería correcta es tener un jardín. Y yo, Gordon, quise fabricar mi propio jardín, pero acabé hundido en el lodo, mis pantalones deshechos, mi camisa en jirones por falta de ciencia, y me dije a mí mismo, tan solo debo consultar el manual de jardinería que me regaló mi amigo villano Ralph. Debo leerlo para entender cómo un jardín se transforma en la parte callada de una persona. Abrí el manual, me salté las cinco páginas iniciales donde se hablaba de jardines famosos, el Edén, lo conozco, el colgante de, ba de Babilonia, el de la Casa Dorada de Nerón, alguno de Pompeya, de Bizancio, los italianos, los franceses, ninguno bello y simple en Fullerton, California. El mío, me dije, será célebre, el jardín de Gordon metido en el más grande que cultiva don Jaime. El manual sugiere buenos instrumentos, guantes, pala, cordel, rastrillo, asadón, tijeras y un diseño previo. Pregúntese, añade el manual, qué tipo de jardín desea, haga un bosquejo. Yo, Gordon, me dije, quiero un jardín, uno, largo, dos, negro, tres, hondo y enraizado. Yo, Gordon, cuerpo de Gordon, quiero ser jardín en las afueras de Fullerton, California donde nadie me dice la verdad, donde nadie me pone en el buen camino. Ve, ayer me contó Anónimo esto, querido diario. En el Edén se paseaba él con su voz en la brisa de la tarde. ¿Quién eres? le volví a preguntar desde mi lodo tibio. Anónimo me miró sonriendo. El gusano que te va a comer, entero para siempre, si no te levantas de una vez. Le dije, ayúdame. Me dijo, no, Gordon, ahora no. A. Life in the mud is superior to life in water, in fire, in water. Dear diary, no one tells me the truth. No one explains how to separate a clod of earth from the other earth that I am touching with my hand, bandaged hand, injured hand. Dear diary, no one tells me what I am doing here, face up, covered in leaves, in gravel, no one puts me on the right path. Yesterday, Anonymous dictated to me one of his sage sentences. The first condition of correct gardening is to have a garden. And I, Gordon, wanted to build my own garden, but wound up sunk in the mud, my pants ruined, my shirt shredded, for lack of science. And I told myself that I should just consult the gardening manual, that my villain friend Ralph gave me. I should read it to understand how a garden transforms into the silenced part of a person. I open the manual. I skip the first five pages where the famous gardens were mentioned. Eden, I know it, the hanging ones in Babylon, the one from the golden house of Nero, some from Pompeii, from Byzantium, the Italian ones, the French ones, none beautiful and simple, from Fullerton, California, mine, I told myself, will be renowned. Gordon's garden, nestled in the bigger one that Mr. Jaime tends. The manual suggests nice tools, gloves, shovel, rope, rake, hoe, scissors, and a prior design. Ask yourself, the manual adds, what type of garden you want. Make a sketch. I... Gordon, I told myself, want a garden that is a long, sorry, one long, two black, three deep and rooted. 
I, Gordon, body of Gordon, want a garden to be a garden on the outskirts of Fullerton, California, where no one tells me the truth, where no one puts me on the right path. B. Yesterday, Anonymous told me this, dear diary, that in Eden he took a walk with his voice in the breeze of the afternoon. Who are you? I asked him again from my tepid mud. Anonymous looked at me, smiling. The worm that is going to eat you whole forever if you don't get up at once. I told him, help me. He told me, no, Gordon, no more. I don't know if I should because it's... How about the time? Yeah. Should I go on? Um, what we... 28, was it 28? 19, 19, I end, or we, maybe 19. Oh, I'll do 19 and maybe end it there. Beneath the thousand-leaved tree, Gordon no longer knows if he is a man or child, if me is I or he is you, if sometimes the air shines white or his head is dyed blue. He squeezes his eyes. The yellow line in his eyelashes extends along, it, along its horizon and a cross of heat, listen up, anonymous, is nailed into the stillness. Sharp lead, that's what Gordon feels in the middle of his face. He looks at the shared garden, stratum of earth, shelves of insects before bumping into the middle that rises to the sky. The gardener Jaime appears just along the edge of the grass, carrying a hose spiraled around his shoulder. He doesn't see Gordon in his shade beneath the tree. He doesn't see that Gordon sees him waving his hand. He doesn't see the words that he tosses to the wind. They knock me down, fierce Gordon. They poke me. Tomorrow I'll send more crumbs, more netting, more glass. He surprises himself. Life for the water. Tomorrow surely tidy Mr. Jaime will polish the blind glass of that pool when he looks for some reflection and finds it barred behind the grime of wings and flies, floating like me, Gordon, who compares my size with this oval at my back and kicks until Donna comes out of the house, yelling from afar, Gordon, be still, that's enough. Tomorrow, he says to himself, or they say to him, Simeon, child, Simeon, sweetness from gravel to gratitude, from pebble to pity, will there be relief? Tomorrow Anonymous will give me what's mine, and I will shout at him from the plants, believe what or whose letters, peeling my eyelids as if removing the skin would remedy the damage of so much perplexity. Mr. I, child me, these letters that gather in words aren't mine. I, Gordon, only know the silence of a, desk, of a desk beneath an indifferent light, accounts entwined with another time, dramatically, thousand-leaved tree, held as made of fixed numbers, at least today. Should we end it there? Thank you very much. from another series of poems um, which, which are in this, this issue of MPT and which are, which are different. Um, I, you, could, you could get, I, I, from, from the reading, I'm sure, some sense of the sort of shimmering complexity of uh, death on Rua Augusta and the sort of multitude of different voices and also the sort of extraordinary ly lyricism of it. You know, those last lines, hell is made of fixed numbers, at least today... It's a really um, extraordinary, a really extraordinary long novel in novel in verse, I suppose. But the um, the, the, the sequence which um, Teddy um, gave us for modern poetry and translation is is rather different. And um, in fact, David Shook, uh, Teddy's translator, picked it out as being very very suitable because it's actually about the experience of a poetry to poet of a poet at a poetry festival. So it seemed really really appropriate for. Um, Teddy, who is coming to the London Book Fair and um, part of that enormous melee and all those readings and, um, and, and literary events. 
Um, and, and it does have a different character, this poem. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, I mean, the narrative is, is much more straightforward, I suppose. You could yes, it's that. a poem that um, I have a very hard... I, I, don't, I don't go to many poetry festivals because I have a very hard time at poetry festivals because they become uh, extremely ide ideological and proofs of identity, proofs of, of goodwill, uh, proofs of good feelings, and poets become populists and they become politicians after a while, especially poets from the third world, uh, because we have, to, we, are, we have to give explanations all the time. So this, I'm not going to say what country it was. <laughs> it was a country in Latin America. Uh, a small country, uh, <laughs> a very democratic country, <laughs> and uh, and I wrote this poem. It's called "Notes from a Poetry Festival," for my friend with a crippled dog. This belongs. This poem belongs to a book that's called "Mi Amigo del Perro Cojo," my friend with a crippled dog or lame dog, depending on because somebody else translated it as lame dog. And it's, it's not a narrative, it's a book of miscellaneous poems. There are poems of all kinds of things. And David chose this one. Uh, I'm going to read it directly in English, I think. That would be the yeah, best. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. I, I chose fragments because it's rather long. I hope its irony doesn't sound cynical to you because it's not. I, it really, it, in a sense, it does relate to Gordon as this kind of sideline personality uh, that always ends up in the hotel room looking at the, at the ceiling and thinking, why am I here? I shouldn't be here because there's a lot of, there are a lot, there's a lot of what we call in Spanish tiempos muertos, no? Time, time that you can't use, that you can't use in anything because you have to be somewhere at 7 o'clock reading your own poems, which you already know. No? So, and <laughs> and I, I don't know if you saw this um, uh, movie on Elizabeth Bishop, uh, Reaching for the Moon, reaching, reaching for the Moon. It's not a great movie. It's, it's about her relationship with uh, Lota de Macedo, I think was her name, uh, the Brazilian architect, great architect. And in a certain uh, moment, she says, uh, when I hear my poems read out loud, they always seem crippled. And the same thing happens to me. I hope it doesn't sound crippled. Notes from a poetry festival for my friend with a crippled dog. Ah, it's in April. This occurred in April. <laughs> I just realized that. <laughs> the 14th of April of 0000. A man with my photo in the air waits for me at the airport, smiles at seeing me, shakes his hand, trips over a suitcase in the aisle where there are more people also waiting. Once in the man's car, we talk about the weather until we stop talking. Then the man explains to me that there will be many poets from many places, which always enriches the citizens of that country or of any other. Since the poets read their poems in their languages and the citizens hear the languages, then visualize what those words say until understanding them seems the same as, the same as knowing with the ears and the voice sometimes reciting while gestures or tones are placed along, sorry, are placed along the poems to annotate them. I, in my seat next to the man, imagine the poets arriving from their countries. I know that the African that sings still hasn't arrived. The, ma the man leaves me at the hotel. My room is not my room. It has, it has neighbors in front of it. Soon they will be observing me. I ask at the reception where to eat. Two blocks down, they sell chicken. There still aren't any poets, but they begin appearing at night. We meet each other at the banquet. I ask them about their countries and their languages. In cars, they take us to a bar with music. Poetry's global existence is celebrated. How much the people appreciate it. How we should educate them. Glasses clink. I smoke at the exit with a local. Our interchange of facts is cordial. He tells me about his democracy. I tell him about mine. The African that, sting, that sings still hasn't arrived. The 15th of April, 0000. In a clean bus, they transport the poets down a narrow highway through coffee fields. 
we will see an active volcano, then a lake, the guide tells us. Upon our arrival, the volcano is covered by clouds, but it appears clearly in the photo that a tourist took an hour ago. Descending, we note that the, that the lake is a lake. A poet writes in his notebook a haiku. He will read it tomorrow, he announces. At night, they take us back to the bar with music. A poet talks about the guerrilla war, how he was in a trench liberating another small country, how a bomb exploded on him, damaged his brain, how now he dances three days a week to recover the clearest part of his head, numbers and colors and memories. Another poet wants to participate. In his country, there has been a revolution. Right, left, it doesn't matter. It was the people themselves. We the, poems look at we the poets look at each other. We the poets know. We have written. We are ready. The African that, sting that sings still hasn't arrived. And I go on. The 18th of April, 0000. I enter the encaged rainforest to see butterflies. It rains in the encaged rainforest. Some cocoons open in seven minutes. I enter the encaged rainforest to see diminutive branches black beneath the rain. I seek refuge in a hut where the tourists eat. I pay attention to the nature with the rain in the encaged rainforest. Later, at another public place, a poet reads about the words trapped in his thorax how they weave webs of silence, how a little girl explores what these lines are, inevitable poems they answer. Later, later they take us to the bar with music where we discuss our ideas. A young man with his glass of beer describes modern conflicts to me. Poems are fountains of energy, he affirms, my friend with a crippled dog. I think of my room's neighbors that observe me with their scattered clothes he smoking, her spouting off. Tomorrow I will leave, my friend. I'm talking to my friend now. Tomorrow I will leave, my friend. This part, this part where the poets will continue making trips inland with their, poets, po their poems for the people. The African that sings will go to the coast. There was an African, literally, who kept on not arriving. <laughs> and the only thing that interested everybody was the African that was going to sing. Nobody wanted to hear the, the poets. Everyone wanted to hear the African that was going to sing. Finally, he arrived because his, his plane was constantly uh, having problems. <laughs> and finally, he arrived, and everyone surrounded the African poet. And of course, we, we all felt very... We, we weren't African, and we couldn't sing, so we kind <laughs> of... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I was just in an interview. You, I, I was really interested. You, wrote, you talked about poetry festivals, and you said I've noticed. Um, you've noticed that complicated Baroque poems are usually found guilty of not taking reality, political reality, into account, and that it's the more simple poems that gain some currency at poetry festivals, where there's obviously issues of, of translation and 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 communication with with. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think anyone can, any poet can ever blame others for not being successful. That's kind of like a, that's kind of a, uh, that's not true, no? Uh, it, I do tend to see that in, in festivals, in poetry festivals, uh, poems that are more complicated uh, are boring. I don't know, I'm, I'm sure there are poets here, and the readership of poetry really belongs to a minority. So when people go to these festivals, sometimes they're students, very young students, high school students, who start to listen to the poems and think, God, this is really boring. But when they hear, they hear the Latin, when it's in Spanish, they think, how boring. Because they can, they, they can understand the words and they don't understand them at the same time. But when a Japanese poet reads, they, they're listening to the Japanese. When the African that sings, sings. So it becomes very muddled and, and it becomes that kind of trip which doesn't mean that poetry festivals in any way are, are... I'm not criticizing poetry festivals. It's just, in some way, Gordon and I keep on going to poetry festivals. <laughs> <laughs>
to very quickly, I, I know um, that you, you probably have questions, and I want to leave a little bit of time, but I did want to ask very, very quickly about the translation, because, you know, as a translator yourself and, and, and being bilingual, working with a translator, or working with, with David, must have been a really interesting experience. And I know David wrote very um, generously about the experience in MPT and how, how good it was, but I wonder, from your perspective, how odd it is to be translated um, into, into, into English. <coughs> Yes, it's almost like a doppelganger, like if I had a double. Uh, and it, it, it's a privilege because you can, you can make corrections, suggestions. I have a certain ear, although not as developed for English as I, I have for Spanish, because I do live in Spanish and write in Spanish. But it is always interesting to see what another poet translator does, because usually that's what happens in poetry. Most translators are poets mm -hmm. as well. And so it's always interesting to see what his or her ear does with the poems. Mm. In the case of Wendy Burke, for example, who was translated, she's also American. It's interesting to see what happens. I was, uh, last year when I was here in London, there was a translation slam, which I think is a very good idea, and I think it should be done in Mexico. Although in Mexico, we're very tense about any kind of competition. Mm. Uh, but uh, David suggested one poem from this book, from Amigo del Perro Cojo, and he had two different poets translated. And it was given, and there was an audience, and they read their versions. And so the, pub, the audience uh, decided what poet, what tra translation was the winner. And they criticized, and it was really very interesting to mm -hmm. see how the translated, because they were very different. One said mm -hmm. lame, one said crippled. One turned it, turned it into kind of a Puerto, Puerto Rican uh, English-type rap poem which had nothing to do with the poem in Spanish, but it worked also. So, yes, it is uh, interesting to see when you can see the language. It must be very... Uh, I haven't been translated into a German or to Polish. Or what happens on, the, on that other side? It's an interesting thing, translation, because you're not actually just translated into another language. You're translated into another voice. To another um, tradition. Yes. A tradition yes. you might not even fit into. No? Yeah. Yes, yes. Often you're making the you're making that tra tradition, I mean, where you're forging new possibilities for the language by existing. But I, I'll, I'll open it up to the floor very quickly because we haven't got much time, and I, I, I know you are going to have, have questions. Um, would anyone like to to put a question to Teddy? I have a microphone as well. If, um, I did ask for a roaming microphone. It seems to have given me a rope, but I'm, <laughs> I'm sure we can get it, get it across to anyone who wants to open things up. I'll, I'll start if you like. My name is my name's Neil. The microphone does work. How, how have you sort of taken advantage of modern um, technology and uh, media? Have you try to use poetry on Twitter and Facebook and your own website? No, I don't. I haven't gotten into that really. I don't have, I'm not on Twitter. I am on Facebook, but I use it more as a... I'm coming like a voyeuse on Facebook. I spy on my friends. <laughs> I don't really... I don't, I don't put anything up on my Facebook. I don't... I've, it's kind of like, like uh, uh, when you... The, like, like playing a game, Facebook. Not for me. So I'm not really into technology with poetry. I know that's something that's done, and I have nothing against it, but I, I don't think I could do it. Do you engage <clears> with your audience through email and through websites? No, I don't have a website. No, no. no I basically very still books and yeah, uh, yeah. paper. and <laughs> I do use a computer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. I was curious to know what you thought of the um, darts by this Oswald. Ah, the dart. I, be, I just started to read it uh, yesterday, so I, 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 th I, n I noticed at the beginning that she she gives her th there's a, a, a list of thank you. She gives thanks to about fifty people, and it's done almost by research. And she interviewed people to do the poem. And sometimes the first impression that I got when I began to read the poem was that it was very constructed. And, uh, and then pretty soon it starts to unroll on its own. Pretty soon you start to believe that the river is talking. And that, but at the beginning I felt a bit like 
this seems very like a like she's she's the river is not really there. It's something that she's still it's still on the page. But then it started to unravel and to 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 flow. I've got a question. So this is I've got the microphone. I'm going to um, take the opportunity. Um, when I was looking at the blurb on the book, I think it mentioned film noir. Um, you know, as a kind of um, description of the style um, of, of River Augusta. And I was wondering what kind of influence film had had on, on that particular um, book. Um, kind of, you know, this, to me, there's kind of maybe hints of uh, thriller like Hitchcock, and um, it's got a, a surrealism maybe to kind of, uh, especially set in California, maybe like David Lynch. I just wonder, is that... Uh, is that David Lynch also... The, there's well, the one movie, of course, that's common at like an almost quote of Sunset Boulevard, no? which begins with a corpse in a swimming pool in California. But the corpse is inside the swimming pool, not beside the swimming pool. <laughs> so that, that, is, that is there. And also a, a film by the Cohen brothers called A Serious, a Serious Man, I think it is, that also has a pool in it, a swimming pool in it. I was telling uh, 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 Sasha that when my family, were, we didn't have very much money to fly to California. So we, they all packed us into a little Volkswagen and we, had, we made road trips from Mexico City to Anaheim, California. They were really very long, they were days and days and days through the northern part of Mexico going through. And it was a different Mexico. It was not the violent Mexico of today, something you couldn't probably do now without being really very, very careful. But, um, and so we stopped at these motels all the time and the great passion was the swimming pools. Always, where is the swimming pool? And the best place was also always the swimming pool because the, the rooms were rather shabby, but the pool was always clean. Until uh, we arrived, finally, uh, that part of California, that part of Texas and California, is filled with swimming pools at the motels. I'm sure you've seen them in movies, no? These very shabby motels, but there's always a swimming pool. Leaving Las Vegas, for example, these two, Nic- Nicholas Cage and, um, I don't remember her name, Elizabeth, whatever, Shu. They, they're always lounging beside a swimming pool. He's always getting drunk beside a swimming pool. Swimming pools are kind of like an obsessive thing in that part of the U.S. Thank you. There was another really fascinating detail that you mentioned when we were talking that we, we haven't... You were talking about the gardener, the Mr. Jaime character in the... In ah, yeah, the I didn't read that part because it, it's... It, it's, we don't have that much time. But the Jaime, there's a part where Jaime also ha- tells Mr. Gordon that he has uh, notebooks, his own notebook of drawings. Uh, Jaime was the name of my father. Uh, my father was like a failed architect. And he, uh, he designed um, a, a, a city on top of Mexico City. <laughs> and the city, on, the city at the bottom of the city was going to be for for cars and scooters and bicycles and public transport. And the part on top that he had designed was going to be for human beings. Well, of course. And they were all, all the buildings were in the form of an egg. And inside the eggs, there was going to be, there were there was not going to be any furniture. They were going to be covered in foam rubber. I didn't think he realized how dangerous that was for fires. Covered with foam rubber, there no chairs. He was against chairs. Of course, he always sat on chairs, but he was against chairs. He wanted us to sit kind of like in the lotus. And um, no water, no running water. He designed a toilet that was going to be like a little hand that was going to come out with a little bag. (laughs) And so Jaime talks to Gordon about his designs, and he shows Gordon his designs, and he talks about these eggs and... uh, and so he, that relationship with Jaime, that this thing about being kind of like the outcast, in that sense, Jaime also is an outcast, and he is my father. He is my father. Used to go to the Mexican public administration with his drawings, and his uh, I don't know what you call maquetas, like the designs, no, and try to get an appointment. And they say we'll call you up. We'll call you up. And they never called him, and he had, we, had, we had all these eggs kind of like <laughs> stored in the, one of the rooms. So Chaim is like uh, a whole much to my, my father. That, that, that actually just sort of almost brings us to a very nice end, because that's the sort of detail that you would absolutely only ever get from a, a reading with a poet. You know, the, the work is so extraordinarily textured, and there are so many references in it. And just even having a, f- a few minutes, really, with Teddy talking about some of the influences and some of the history, um, which, which have 
brought the work to what it is is just so completely fascinating. It's, it's just what, what being in a live poetry reading is all about, hearing the work and also hearing some of the detail behind it. And I just, just really love you to, um, um, to join me in thanking Teddy for such a brilliant and enlightening no, evening. Thank you very much.